together tonight. We will be in Amos chapter 3. So if you have the church's Bible, that will be on page 1058. So everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. I heard this just this week. Probably you have too. People use this statement when something bad happens, and it's supposed to be comforting. Other times it's used when something good happens, and it is meant to affirm that that which has happened was supposed to happen. The philosopher Aristotle, some 2,300 years ago, in a quest to discover the true meaning of life, he came to the conclusion that anything and everything that has happened to you today has a purpose because it turns you in to the person you are becoming. So everything happens for a reason, Aristotle concludes. The thing is, I think that Aristotle is almost accurate, all except for the why things happen the way that they do. And I think that most who use this phrase use it in a passive sense, as if things are just happening to them, without their control, their influence, or their participation. Void of purpose. Many link this idea to a spiritual connection as if the cosmic forces of the world have a plan for all things that occur, right? The universe is somehow working things out. Sometimes you get a good hand, sometimes you get a bad hand, but there's a plan. Some connect this to isolated scriptures, like in Ecclesiastes 3, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time for healing, a time for laughing, a time for silent speaking, love, hate, war, and peace. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a hope and a future. In Romans 8.28a, the first half, Paul says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. The danger that this philosophy poses, whether it is inside the church in this place or out in the world, is its tendency to ignore. Not to be ignorant, but the act of ignoring. To accept certain things and not others to admit certain things but not others, to blame certain parties and not others, to receive certain things but not others. 
So instead of Aristotle's rather self-centered, self-involved, selfish view that everything happens for a reason, I believe we are to understand a God-involved view that there is a reason everything happens. So it's with this understanding and this goal that we study tonight in Amos chapter 3. Roger, if you would, oh, it's already there, fantastic. So um, have just a little bit for us tonight up here. Um, the first thing is that we have moved to a far simpler map now to kind of understand what is going on. We remember that at this time that we read in Amos that the nation of Israel has been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's really only two cities that are of, of significance for us, and that is Tekoa, where Amos is from, in Judah, and that is Bethel, which is one of the religious centers or the places with a house of worship in Israel where Amos will travel and in the city that he will prophesy. So if you've read much in Amos, it is a book that's unlike any other. It doesn't seem quite like a gospel that lays things out very simply for us. It is not a book like the Psalms that is merely a group or collection of songs, but there is a lot that is going on in this book. And it's because it's really a collection of the things that Amos was saying in Bethel. So it wasn't all at once. It was over a series of days, maybe even a couple of weeks. Um... And so if you look up there and you see the outline of Amos, this is what the book of Amos consists of. So we have studied the first section, which are the judgments against the, the nations, um, the, the, the pagan nations that surrounded Israel and Judah, and then Judah, and then Israel. And so the other three things that Amos contains is a group of sermons, a group of visions, and finally, some promises. So you could wonder why all of these things are taking place, but I believe in and of themselves, they are a picture of the fullness of what God offers every one of us. Chance after chance, and opportunity after opportunity to hear his word. So for the next several weeks, we'll be studying the sermons that Amos gave. Now, these sermons are not like ours that last 20 minutes to an hour and a half. They were very short and very direct. But in some way, they're kind of the same thing that we do every week. We say the same thing in a different way. We talk about God's love and we talk about God's plan, and that's what Amos does in each of his sermons. So tonight we'll cover the first sermon, which is in chapter 3. And for me, it's always helpful to kind of, kind of consider what it is that we're, we're looking at. Because chapter 3 consists of 13 verses that are 15 verses that are very complex and dependent and also independent of each other. So Amos is going to do three things, all that revolve around judgment. The first thing he's going to do for Israel is he's going to describe the judgment they deserve exactly why they deserve this judgment. Next, he is going to 
declare that judgment. He's going to make sure they know that judgment is coming. And finally, he's going to describe exactly what the judgment will be. Sometimes I think it would be great if we had exactly that from God each and every day, right? God, are we in agreement with you or aren't we? And if we are not, can you tell us how we're not? Can you proclaim it to us clear and vividly? And can you tell us what will happen if we do not remain in agreement with you? But that's what scripture already does for us. It does those three things. And those three things are really the culmination of God's love for us. The culmination of God's love is not that we would always seem to just be in right standing and everything going well and there not to be any dissension or war or battles in our life. It seems like that's all we want, but really the love of God is that he would show us where we are if we were in sin or are in sin that he would reveal it to us and make it known to us so that we can leave that place to be where he is. It's like the illustration, and I, I don't even know that I fully know it, but studying counterfeit versus what is real, right? You don't study what is fake, you study what is real, and that is really what God's love does, is it shows us these things so that we can know what is to be real with him. So turn with me, we will begin by reading the entire chapter, chapter 3, and then we'll kind of go through it in, in chunks together. Amos says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and in all the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See the great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be around you, excuse me, shall be around the land, he shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord, the God of hosts, 
that in that day I will punish Israel for their transgressions. I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, says the Lord. So this is quite different from most 21st century sermons that begin with a great story, an illustration, a a personal story, a, a comic strip or something like that and make everything sound great and tie together, Amos gets right into it and gets directly to the point. He says exactly why they deserve what they are getting. He declares it to them and describes it for them. And the things that we read may be difficult to grasp because they're not written in our language and they're written in the context of Israel, but they knew exactly what Amos is saying and why he was saying it. So we'll go, go through this a few verses at a time. So in the beginning, Amos says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying... We should hear everything that the Lord says to us through a lens like this. Reminding us of who we were apart from him. That he chose us to be his own. That he has delivered us from the pit and from the mire and he has put us on solid ground. And anything that the Lord says to us should to be understood this way. I hear the lament of a parent in the Lord's tone. As he shares with them these words, he's saying it like a father to a child and saying, you are my child whom I have loved. Reminds them that they have been delivered out of the land of Egypt. In this, in this entire passage, Amos is going to use lots of what are called I statements by the Lord. Amos is speaking on behalf of the Lord and they know this, but he is going to reinforce it with the Lord's first person singular, I. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. Lest we forget who has done this, lest we think that we have had anything to do with the Lord's transformation in our life. And that seems so silly that we'd even have that thought, but how often do we think we can do it on our own and do we diminish what the Lord has done and it leads us into temptation and bondage. The Lord says in verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. This word for known is yada, and it is incredibly significant in the Hebrew language. It doesn't just mean know like we see someone, we shake hands, and we know them. It is the word that Adam and Eve became intimate, and they had relations. It is a word that means intimacy. It is a word that brings two separate parties together. The Lord says of all the families on the face of the earth, you have I had a deep relationship with. It also, in Genesis, it is the word that God uses to describe how he has chosen Abraham. To know means to choose. To be chosen means to be known. God reminds Israel that he has known them because he first chose them. 
And it is because of this special relationship that he will punish them, verse 2 says, for all their iniquities. So verses 3 through 8 are really a, a special, special section of, of their own. And they're really a remarkable, poetic style that Amos uses as kind of a rhetorical trap. He draws his listeners in with this series of what are obvious statements that seem so insignificant, each of them by themselves, but really they build like somebody being led into a trap which they cannot escape. The first thing he says is, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Now, unlike our roads today, roads at this time would have been very small, maybe just, just wide enough for one person, maybe two, to walk on. So if you can imagine that roads were not altogether very common, and if there was a road and two people would be walking on a road together, it would not be by accident. This, this statement describes two parties walking together. Some translations, some of yours may say an appointment. Others might say to agree to meet. This word here is ya'ad, and it is actually the root word that moedim comes from. Moedim is the word that we, we talk about an appointed time, a feast, or a season. And it comes from this idea of an appointment, an agreement, something that is in no way by chance or accident. It is, it is as if two are walking on a road and there is a decision made to continue to walk on that road together. answer to this question Amos asks, can two walk together unless they are agreed, is of course no. Two people cannot meet on a road unless they have an appointment. They don't remain in lockstep unless they agree to do so. This idea of agreement has meant so much to me for the last few months. Deborah taught on being in agreement with the Lord some months ago and it has transformed me because I have realized the difference between wanting to be with the Lord and being in agreement with the Lord. See, the Lord's truth does not change. We may understand new and different aspects, but the Lord's word and his truth was the same yesterday, today, and forever. So for us to be in agreement with it, is not to venture to try and continually understand things, but to come in agreement with the one who has given it and allow him to change what we understand to be true. So I believe that this statement right here has two meanings. Either we are walking with the Lord because we have agreed to do so or not. There is no gray area here. 
The alternative represents that if we are walking in the ways of the enemy, it has not happened by accident, haphazardly, but it is the result of the choice to do so. Amos says to the people of God, can two walk together unless they are agreed? God does not come down from the heavens and agree with our ways. We go to where God is and we come in agreement with his ways. So next Amos will build upon this idea. He says, will a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Well, I don't know much about lions, but this is pretty simple. I understand that lions roar at two times. They either roar in order to let their prey know they're coming for it, or they roar after they have captured their prey and they are satisfied. Lions don't roar for no reason. Then it goes on to say, will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? I understand that young lions are a little different. They don't just roar before they go after their prey. Their roar is not as great. But they wait until their prey comes into their area. They capture their prey and then they roar and growl to let them know that they have captured their prey. Both of these are statements of, of course, the answer is no. A lion does not roar in the forest when it has no prey, and a young lion does not cry out of its den if it's caught nothing. These were statements that they would have well understood, and why is Amos even asking this silly question? In verse 5 it says, Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Well, of course not. Trap birds were something that the Israelites knew of because they trap birds for worship of the Lord and his temple. These were trapping birds in order to worship false gods. A trap involves two parties, the one who has set the trap and the one who takes it. Verse 5 builds on this idea of a trap and it says, Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? Likewise, I don't know a lot about setting traps, but I know traps were, were meant for something to go in it, and a trap does not spring up unless it has caught something. Amos then says in verse 6, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? We know that trumpets are blown for a few reasons. One of the reasons is for an alarm, to let everybody know that the enemy is coming, prepare for battle also to herald a celebration. In this verse, it is not the latter, it is the former. And it would cause the people to tremble because they know their enemies would come. Paired with this idea of the trumpet blasting, it says, if there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? So this is paired with the idea that the trumpet is blasting, that it has been blasted to announce that the enemy is coming and there will be calamity in that city. Now in this context, um, I believe this is referring to the enemy coming in and having complete destruction over this city. This word here for calamity is a simple Hebrew word for evil. And it is the word ra'ah. 
It was one of the first words I learned in Hebrew. We learned it right after we learned the word for good. We learned the word for evil. And these words are complete opposites. You cannot understand the fullness of evil unless you understand the fullness of good. And if you understand the fullness of God's good purpose, then you understand the fullness of the enemy's evil purpose. But calamity is different than just harm. Calamity is used by Isaiah to describe the enemy's crushing of Israel. Isaiah says they crushed, they trampled, they took away their freedom. So when the trumpets sounded and calamity came, God allowed it as punishment on his people due to their iniquities. So calamity is the opposite of good, the opposite of God's purpose, also represents God removing his hand of protection from his people, which allows for the enemy to confront and overtake. This is exactly what happened to Israel. 30 years after Amos gave this prophecy was when the Assyrians would come in and calamity would happen. They would be completely taken away into captivity. After these seven different examples, these seven statements of certainty and finality that Amos gives, it says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. This is God's goodness. That the culmination of all of these realities, right? These realities that as, as the Israelites would have heard them, they knew that these were true, that they were deserved for them. Amos says, you should be reminded that God has not brought this without first telling his prophets these secrets. And they have certainly brought these words. Amos was not the first and Amos was not the last. They continued to hear. So verse 8 says, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? See, God's prophets, those who know God, knew these things. And when God gave this understanding and word, it was as if Amos had no choice but to share God's truth. If we know these things, we have no choice but to fear the Lord who has spoken and to give words of his truth. Hmm. So this concludes the, the place that Amos is saying why Israel deserves this judgment. So the next section, verses 9 through 12, is going to declare this. Hmm, I, I kind of forgot. Let's turn back to verse 1. Um, in verse 1, it begins, hear this word. And this word here for hear is the word we know, Shema. It is the, the word that we read tonight. And Shema means to hear. And it is this emphatic command that means to 
to grab a hold of, to listen up with the intent to obey. It is a word that requires action. It's why when Moses says, hear, O Israel, he is saying, listen up, Israel. You're to, you're to obey all these commandments that we have just read. This is exactly what God is saying to the children of Israel when he begins this sermon is listen up. We turn back to our section beginning in in verse 9. And each of these sections, these three sections, begin with the same word Shema. In your translation in verse 9, it probably doesn't say here. It says proclaim, behold. And so it's the same word used a little differently because of what this context says. It says proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and the palaces of the land of Egypt. And say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria, see great tumults in her midst. And it goes on to say, and so, um, this, this section is using legal terms of hear and testify. I've mentioned that before, that Amos uses these words that are, that are understood in a legal sense. And so it is as if Amos is calling both of these places, Ashdod and Egypt, to serve as witnesses in the trial versus the people of Israel. Palestine was a leading, excuse me, Ashdod was a leading city in Philistine, in uh, Philistia, and both the Philistines and the Egyptians had reputations for injustice that Israel would have certainly resented. Pick any nation of the world that we think is heinous in their war crimes, their treatment of people, slave labor, and genocide. And imagine the Lord putting us on par with that nation and saying, I'm going to call them as witnesses against your judgment proclaim this word to them. Verse 10 says, for they do not know to do right. Well, this can't be what we think it means. It can't mean that Israel, who is the, those who inherited God's land and received God's law, do not know what is right. But instead, it's not that they never knew what was right, but that doing wrong had become first nature. Doing wrong had become such first nature that it goes on to say, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. So much so that they had forgotten right because they didn't do it. I think we ignore this reality and assume that following God will always be first nature to us. But if we allow ourselves to come in agreement with the enemy, I assure you it won't be. If you've ever been drug off for a little bit and you're out of practice with spending time in the Lord or you're around family or friends and you, you might say, I'm just a little bit out of sorts and it's kind of takes a minute to get back, right? Takes a minute to feel like you know what is the Lord's purpose. So it is with Israel that it says, if they didn't know how to do what was right. Verse 11 says, therefore, thus says the Lord, right? Because of what they've done, this is a proclamation to the world. An adversary shall be around the land. 
he shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. This is exactly what we just said was prophesied that the Assyrians would come in. They would surround Israel on every side. They would sap their strength and they would indeed plunder their palaces. That's really not important because their palaces were filled with idol worship and idolatry and pagan places of worship. Verse 12 says, again, thus says the Lord, like verse 7, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. Now this is a a pretty bizarre illustration, but you can read this week in Exodus 22 if you like. And 10 through 13. And it describes that, that if somebody was in care or had taken care of someone else's animal. So if I had taken your horse and borrowed it. I was to return that horse to you or that cattle to you in the same condition that you gave it to me. If that horse had, had been poorly nourished. If it had gotten its ankle caught in barbed wire. I would give you a more satisfactory one in return. The only thing that gave an excuse for me returning that back to you in less than great condition is if a wild beast had attacked that piece of cattle. In which case, I would have to bring you the remains of that animal to show you that it wasn't my fault that I hadn't mistreated, that I hadn't neglected, that I hadn't ignored your animal. So Amos's comparison to this is not almost, it is completely sarcastic. That when invasion strikes Israel, all that will be rescued from them is proof in the form of furniture. Furniture is not something that was common at that time. It was in and of itself a sign of extravagance and wealth. So the Lord said, the only thing that will be proof of you, the only thing that will remain, is this furniture. So finally, in verses 13 through 15, Amos will describe the judgment that will come. Again, he says, hear and testify these legal terms. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord, the God of hosts. And that day I will punish Israel for their transgressions. So we know numbers mean something. So even the the thirdness of this idea of hear again and again and again. Each time Amos is really trying to just tell them, please listen. It's not too late. See, it's not even too late for Israel as they hear this word. They could stop at any moment. They could repent of their sins. They could return to the ways of the Lord. There's another 30 years they continue on. This isn't the first message. This is the fifth time they've heard the same version of the same thing, even just by Amos. And even in this own sermon, the third time he says, listen up, please grab a hold of this. Now he'll use these I statements again. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord. The God of hosts said, in that day I punish Israel for their transgressions. These I statements, I will punish Israel for their transgressions. I will visit destruction on the altars. I will destroy 
their houses. Even within each of these statements is this pairing of threes again. I, I, I. We should hear in this that this is God and God alone doing this. This isn't an accident. God hasn't forgotten and, oh, I didn't move the Assyrians around. No, God has sent each of these things to occur. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. As I studied this chapter, I have thought of Hanukkah. Because these altars that he says in verse 14, it says, I will punish Israel for their transgressions. I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off. Right, this was a, an altar that they had put in their pagan centers for worship. And the Lord hates these altars. He breaks off the horns. The horns were a symbol of strength. I've thought about these altars that have been willfully committed to false gods that would be destroyed by the Lord. This is a very different picture from the one we read about in Hanukkah where the Maccabees are wanting to return to the Lord's ways. And their heart's desire is to open up the temple so they can establish the altar and they want to light the lamps and rededicate that place. These altars were consumed with idol worship. When we build a place of idolatry, when we do this, we invite God to destroy it. Here he says he'll break off the horns and they will fall to the ground. Finally, Amos says in verse 15, I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. Their houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses will, shall have an end. So, obviously we have a couple of, of different ideas of a house here. We have a winter house and a summer house. We even have houses of ivory and I don't have a winter house and a summer house. I have one house. I don't know that there's anything wrong with having multiple houses. But multiple houses in this day weren't common. Houses made of ivory weren't common. As I was studying this week, I read that there have been excavations in cities nearby, Samaria and Bethel, um, particular a, a city called Terzah. And Terzah would be somewhere around, around here. And there have been excavations that have shown that until the 8th century, which was when Amos was prophesying, that neighborhoods consisted of houses almost the exact same size. And so I imagine most of our neighborhoods, with the exception of some of us, where, where all of the houses around us are about the same size, about the same style, with a few different variations. And up until the time of Jeroboam II, who's king at this time in Israel, that's how neighborhoods were from the excavations that had been done. Beginning in the 8th century, they, they noticed differences that there were different neighborhoods in the same city. One neighborhood with houses that were substantially smaller than any neighborhood in centuries past, and another neighborhood with houses that were three to four times the size of not just the smaller neighborhoods, but all the houses in centuries past. 
So I imagine some of us live in houses that are 15 to 2,000 square feet. Imagine going to a town where all of the houses were 500 square foot or 4,000 square feet. That's what Amos was seeing. So Amos uses this idea of a house beginning in this section to describe the Lord's judgment. He says, against the house of Jacob. Then he says, in that idea, in that day, in verse 14, I will punish Israel for their for their transgressions, and I will also visit the destruction on the altars of Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Then he says he will destroy their actual houses. He talks about the house as a group of people as Israel. And then he says, I will destroy your houses of worship because they are dedicated to the enemy, and I will destroy your own houses of ivory and summer and winter because you have gotten them by profiting off of taking advantage of the poor. Everything you have and you are is detestable to me. So this is the Lord's message in this sermon from Amos to Israel. So I have been struck this week by this, what I believe is a false teaching, that everything happens for a reason. And I've heard it a couple of times. I've heard it from a coworker who talked about an, an illness, and, and this person said, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I, I grieved over that because I thought... That sounds so right. But this false teaching, I believe, has swept in to the people of God. And it's not even that I think we think everything happens and it's all going to just work out for God's purpose and glory. But that we have taken on this position of being willfully ignorant of the reason that things do happen. We assume that maybe God will tell us eventually. We assume that if something's not working out, it's for, for no reason. But if something does work out, it's because of God who has done it. We pick and choose what we attribute and what we buy into and what we receive and what we refuse. I believe this is a grave lie the enemy uses to keep us trapped. I think that one of Amos's overwhelming goals was to teach Israel that instead there is a reason everything happens. For every cause, there is an effect. In their case, they had a choice to make, and they failed to heed God's word again and again and again, and the effect would be their punishment. Now, this does not mean that I believe God reveals every reason for everything that does happen. But that there is a reason. That there is an authority that is either from heaven or from under heaven. This understanding about two walking together on this road has been transformative to me. Because I see that there is no gray area to the road that leads to the Lord. 
We can only be in agreement with one party in our walk. We cannot go two directions at once. We cannot have two appointments at the same time. Like God who had known and chosen Israel, we must choose this day whom we will serve. Amen.